Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Tyler Ellison, founder and CEO of ChemDirect, a digital marketplace for the chemical industry, connecting hundreds of thousands of products from vetted and reputable manufacturers with buyers who can transparently shop, compare, and purchase. Welcome to the podcast, Tyler. Thanks, Elaine. I appreciate you having me. Well, Tyler, I'm fascinated by your background because I saw that you actually started your career as a lawyer. And I went at, from being an engineer to taking the LSAT and have every, having everyone in my life that was a lawyer, was married to a lawyer, telling me not to do it. So I abandoned <laughs> ship pretty quickly and got into tech. But I'd love to hear your story of how did you go from law and being a lawyer into the logistics and eventually chemicals industry? You know, I, I, I went to law school and it was everything I expected and hoped it would be. And then, you know, I, I sort of the dog caught the car, I got a job in a great firm. And then it's sort of like the first day of the rest of your career takes off. And I, I found it so incredibly boring, Elaine, that, you know, <laughs> that if I, if I could have been in trial or in the courtroom, like, you know, even once a month, I'd probably still be doing it. But the value creation was was so nuanced that it, it, I was always envious of the business and startup clients across the table from me. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to wait until I'm a you know 50 year old disgruntled lawyer to pull shoot. And so I did it relatively quickly. I had a similar story actually. I was a mechanical engineer and thought I was going to do medical devices, and pretty quickly realized it would take me about 10 years to have a job I loved. And it didn't feel like a timeline I was willing to sit with. That's exactly right. Yep, exactly. <laughs> nice. Well, you know, for most of us in the tech world, the global chemicals market is definitely not something we're super familiar with. So we'd love to hear you just give us a little sense of how big is this market today? And ultimately, how does it operate? Can you walk us through where it stands? Sure. Yeah. And in, in I'll start big and kind of go narrow. So the, the global market is about $5 trillion. Um, extraordinarily fragmented. So the, the largest chemical chemical company in the world represents 1.6%. So wow. very similar to the logistics industry that I, I was formerly in. Uh, very large, very fragmented with, with pretty slow digital adoption. And so the, the dynamic on a global scale is the, the fastest growing production regions in Asia. You know, you have uh, China, India, to a lesser degree, Taiwan and Japan. Uh, really cannot access the biggest end use markets, which are the North America number one and, and Western Europe too. So you have all of these intermediaries in between and these very manual long transactions. And there's no digital kind of connective tissue from the biggest production markets to the biggest end markets. Domestically, you have a lot of the same dynamics, just not quite as large. It's still a, a massive domestic North American market. But there is no, and, and as a CEO of an, uh, a manufacturer, it was remarkable to me that the only connection you have to the end market is through traditional distribution channels. Um, and that created an issue on a whole host of fronts. One is no bi bi-directional data flow. 
-hmm. So the whole thing is sort of thrives off of uh, opacity. And so that hurts your forecasting, operating planning, massive swings in, in order flow and volume. Two is really your inability to build a brand. So private label is a you know, core value of, of these distributors. So you never really get to build your brand. <clears throat> and third is the, the, the value chain is, is really lumpy in the supply chain. It's about seven to nine touches and lead times are like 16 to 20 weeks. So I sat there as a, wow. as a CEO of a manufacturer going, there has to be a better way. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. When you were, you know, the CEO and, you know, ultimately on the board for quite a few years of, it was Nova Molecular Technologies, correct? Yes. When, when you were manufacturing, how did the supply chain work from there? So you're producing product given that lead time and given the fragmentation and number of middlemen, how did you do things like inventory planning and understanding where the right demand was and things like that? Yeah, you, you were really hamstrung. And that was really part of the catalyst of saying, how do we, how do we make this better? You, you weren't able to forecast your, your inventory planning was more reactive than proactive. Um, and your, your visibility into the end use. Um, so you, you don't know what companion products you don't, you don't, you really can't user test because you really never meet the user. So there was just a, a whole host of issues that made it very frustrating from, from where I sat, that there's gotta be a way to just connect all of these things in a more immediate fashion. Were you manufacturing in the US? Yes, we had all US based plants. And then was the demand also in the U.S.? Yeah, by and large, we we exported very little, but it was in the U.S. How has the you mentioned Asia being the largest production today, but the demand still coming mostly from North America and Western Europe? How has that shifted over time, over recent you know last decade? And do you see that continuing to shift? Yes, it's 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 been shifting. You know, the, I think the CAGR over there is maybe you know eight to ten percent, probably two to three in the U.S. for manufacturing. Um, regulatory environments more favorable, uh, labor environments more favorable, and, and so the, the, the production cost is much lower there. Um, but here's an example: like 90% of the world's absorbic acid is is produced in China. The world needs absorbic acid, right? And they literally can't get it to the consumption nations. Interesting. Given and the that size trend is going to continue. Well, given the size of the population in China, India, and other areas in Southeast Asia, do you see the demand spiking significantly there for a lot of these chemicals? Uh, it is. It is. Yep. The, especially the life sciences, we've, we've seen spike in, in both China and India. Interesting. Well, given how global the industry is, and you mentioned the largest producer being only 1.6% of the market, which is just staggering how long tail this is. What does the logistics and kind of supply chain look like? Can you walk us through, let's say there's a company in the U.S. that wants to buy a chemical that is manufactured in China. How does that get to you? Um, so it would go through um, in-country um, dis distribution. So within China, then it would go through the typical supply chain of freight forwarders, you know, that whole supply chain. Then it would get to a domestic distributor. And that's... a that's a, an, another kind of tangled mess where they have partner distributors, they have their own regional distributors. And then it's just the touches are like probably 10 to 12 different touches. And with chemicals, the fewer touches, the better, right? Because you have to maintain its purity. So it really is a, a kind of a jumbled value chain. Are there nuances with chemicals that are either reactive or non-stable or need certain kind of biohazard protections around transportation? 
There's certainly, there's certainly, and I think that's a big advantage to ChemDirect is we have all of those digitized, right? So, you know, storage, temperature, you know, types of facilities it can and cannot be in. Can it go air? Can it go LTL? Um, all of those, all of those things we have digitized, but there are very, yeah, it's, it's, we're not selling sweaters and socks. I mean, this is, <laughs> you have to be very, very cautious. Yeah, I would imagine. You know, you mentioned how many touch points exist today. In terms of margin structure, every time, you know, from what I've learned, every time any product changes hands through a middleman, it gets marked up a bit and a bit and a bit. So what does that ultimately look like if you're having six to 10 touch points from the manufacturer all the way to the end market? Yeah, it's, it's incredible margin arbitrage, and it, it depends on, on chemistry type as we learn, as we expand different industrial verticals. But in the, in the life sciences, um, you know, in the chemistries that we are, it could be 70 to 90% margin the wow. distributors are taking. Wow. So that was part of the part of the passion I had around ChemDirect is returning a lot of that value back to the manufacturer. I mean, I, I sat there, you know, we had the risk, the capital risk, the risk risk, you know, we're dealing with manufacturing chemicals. And really, I didn't think got to enjoy the, the fair amount of, of earnings for the mm -hmm. effort. And so how do you how do you transition that back to the manufacturer? Well, this is the perfect opportunity to jump in a little bit to what you're building at ChemDirect, but maybe you can start going back in time. You had multi-decades career in the global logistics space, and then obviously mm -hmm. with a chemical manufacturer itself. So tell us a little bit about your career evolution and how it led you to the idea for ChemDirect. Sure. So, um, you know, you are, I'm at an age where you sort of are what your resume says you are. And so I've always really spent my time where, where, technology and um, large fragmented industrial markets sort of fuse. And so in, in logistics, I was always intrigued by um, how do you digitally aggregate, you know, the, the long tail buyer and in the, in the logistics industry, and most, most people not in logistics don't know this, but 80% of the truckload capacity is, is driven by people with fewer than 20 trucks. Mm -hmm. So it's not like the big trucking companies that dominate the capacity the landscape, it's the small trucker. And in order to aggregate those people effectively, you had to have a digital solution and it had you know, to be cost effective. So I spent a lot of my career trying to figure out how do we, how do we digitally aggregate and create a dynamic network with these things. And, and so you learn, you, you, I learned through logistics, the importance of information, data, reliability, um, and you, you, you can't have defects. And just like in, in the world of chemistry, and so all of those lessons really carried over into and experiences carried over into the, the chemistry world where it's, it's like, okay, you've got occasional buyers that can't simply, they can't access important chemistries. Big distributors tend to rally around big buyers, big pharma, big hospital systems, you know, Mayo Clinic's not, you know, wanting for chemicals. Um, but these small labs are. And so we have, we have corners offices, we have, you know, doing important work that simply can't they're, they're always out of stock. So that was our original thesis was having a laser focus on aggregating life science manufacturers, chemical manufacturers, and then going um, to that long tail occasional buyer. Very successful, very sticky on an 80% recurring revenue rate. And then COVID hit and we're like, okay. Um, so we launched right literally during COVID. And I'm like, ah, well, we'll see what happens. Um, but important lessons, you know, one was, I think my focus was too narrow. You know, I always thought, you know, in a startup, you should be focused and not kind of blast all over. But what happened was our average order to fulfillment time is like three and a half days, which is very quick. And 
COVID hit and because we're transparent with all of the data back to the manufacturers, they can adjust and pivot their production based on what they see. So they see traffic patterns, price, we're totally transparent. And then obviously COVID hit all the sanitation buckles, you know, isopropyl alcohol, all of those things started spiking. We were on the front row of that demand, passed it off to the manufacturers. They're like, are you kidding me? You know, IPA is going for three bucks a pound. They kept us in stock. So we're like the little tiny ChemDirect. We're the only ones in stock. So then we started getting bigger institutional orders. And they said, well, we love buying from you because A, you're in stock, but B, we can order every week and we don't have to met, you know, make these quarterly orders and then store hazardous chemicals on our you know, property. Mm-hmm. So we underestimated the institutional value. And, and since then, you know, are redoing our entire platform to be able to accommodate all types of buyers. So, you know, e-procurement. So it, our value prop really does extend more broadly than I expected. Interesting. And your timing, it was definitely interesting, but it potentially opened up some new doors that gave you some interesting insights into the market. Exactly. Exactly. Given the nature of how long tail both the supply and demand is in this market, which piece of the marketplace is harder to aggregate at the beginning? Uh, the, the manufacturing side, once they found out we we're from the industry, um, was far less friction than I expected, hmm. um, frankly. So they, they got, um, they loved it. They're like, hey, we, we can expand our reach. We can hit different markets. You know, they don't have a digital strategy. They might not have a lot of commercial representation around the country, but they make great chemicals. So that was a, that was an easier conversation. So the, the manufacturers came on board and then digitally aggregating the long tail was interesting because you learn something new every day. And so it's just like, you can't believe the amount of people that buy chemicals, you know, from nail salons to, you know, we've had, you know, very sophisticated buyers to a guy that runs a porta potty company needing... <laughs> And so it's, it's really trying to figure out the taxonomy and use case for your platform, given the widely varying group of long tail. So I'd say the bigger challenge is aggregating and kind of creating themes around and use cases around that long tail has been trickier. Yeah, I would imagine the marketing you would need to get in front of a nail salon and explain to them what you do is wildly different than a lab or something like that. Right, exactly, exactly. Interesting. In terms of how you do go about messaging, what, especially for the buyers of chemicals, what are the main value propositions that you're able to offer? Is it pricing? Is it speed? Is it just removing all the friction from a digital platform perspective? What are you, what are you providing them? Yeah, I'd say, you know, what we've learned and continue to learn, Elaine, is, is in the life sciences, it's, it's primarily access. Mm. Um, that's a relatively price insensitive vertical, even though our prices are usually better. Um, but it's simply, they just need the chemistry in today. Um, two would be speed, you know, three and a half days versus 12, 16 weeks is, is super fast in the industry. And then three is we're transparency and selection. So they can see all the chemicals. They can see all the price. It's not email me for a quote. Everything's listed. And I think as, as adult millennials get into procurement roles, they're, you know, they're trained to shop like that. And so that's really who we're focusing on there. And then in the, in the more industrial um, verticals, um, it's the ability to have something in stock and, and speed and price. So it's, it's kind of common throughout the verticals. Makes sense. 
Are there certain types of products and chemicals that you're able to handle versus ones that you're not? Uh, no, we can, we can handle all of them other than, you know, there's a list of, of do not handle chemicals, you know, by the government. So we obviously don't, we don't touch those, but um, no, we're, we're very particular. We're, we vet the manufacturers very carefully. They're all resp very responsible manufacturers. So, you know, that's another check and check and balance. And then the end user, depending on the chemical type, you know, we have to have a tax ID. So we only sell to, you know, registered businesses. We don't ship to PO boxes. So we're very, very vigilant around who, who we ship to and both customer and manufacturer side. And are you actually handling the shipping and logistics components? Or are you matchmaking and letting them deal with the supply chain as they always had? So ultimately, yeah, we, we are, we ultimately aspire to handle where you can discover, compare, buy, ship, and, you know, e even eventually store. Mm. So even if you're not buying from us, we want the ability to come to our site and you can actually ship chemicals. So we're going to have all of that in the ecosystem um, for the customers and manufacturers. Interesting. Yeah, you're going to chip away at all those middlemen. Where do you see today as the easiest opportunity to start cutting out some of those touch points? Obviously you have the aggregation of supply and demand, but in terms of all the people that play in the middle, where are you starting to chip away first? Yeah, I'd say right now there's a lot of products that there's no value added services needed. Mm -hmm. So those, those chemistries that if you buy absorbic acid, you're buying off of a spec sheet. So everything that we have, that's just a spec. And usually people buy off a specification. And so that makes, that lends itself towards a B2B marketplace very effectively. If there are, are proprietary blends and, and things that need to have, you know, that type of value added services, we've sort of parked that, that on, you know, down our roadmap because that's, that's a lot more technical. So really focused in, and it's still, you know, billions of dollars worth of chemicals that you can just buy off of spec and it's not any, any blending or technical services needed. Yeah, makes sense. And it's such a huge market, as you mentioned at the beginning. Right. Massive. The industry specifically is definitely one you don't think of as being early tech adopters and quite laggard. I think of people calling up on the phone, fax machines, things like that. How are you seeing it change? And why is now a time when people are more willing to adopt new technology? Well, I, I think there's, you know, a couple things. I think, um, I think that was definitely a trend pre-COVID and then COVID has really you know, added tailwinds to the trend of people want to, you know, and, and <clears throat> Amazon's trained everybody. I mean, people want to shop and compare and buy, and, and it's more and more of a speed-driven economy. And so we're seeing, you know, a lot of adoption digitally and we're seeing a lot of people search online for chemicals. And, and last month we had like 32 different countries on our website searching for chemicals. So it's not just in the U.S. It's, there, there are people searching universities, a lot of university traffic we have on our site. Interesting. Yeah, PhD students, people looking for specific chemistries. They're obviously digital adopters, so they're hunting for for uh, chemicals online. And I, we just think that's a trend that's only going to continue. Yeah, it makes sense, especially given the fact that we all have literally a computer in our hand or pocket at all times. Easy access. Well, yeah, that's the, oh, and Elaine, what, what's what's shocking to me is literally forty nine percent of our traffic is done via mobile. Wow, that is shocking. Yeah. Yes. 
It makes sense though, when you think about who the market is, the people are typically not necessarily sitting at a computer at all times. There are a lot of people, you know, you mentioned nail salons. That's a perfect example of somebody who would be ordering on their mobile devices or a lot of other things like that. Universities, same thing. Yes. Yeah. But I would, I would never have pictured that in the chemical industry, but yeah, almost 50% of our, our traffic is via mobile. You also mentioned something interesting a bit ago around uh, younger people, millennials kind of coming into leadership positions in these companies. Are you seeing that change a lot of the dynamics around the manufacturers themselves or is it more on the demand that you're seeing the shift? Um, I think it's changing the dynamics of the manufacturers uh, as well, even in um, technology adoption with the plant, uh, use of robotics. I mean, I just think there's a there's starting to be a sea change in just how millennials are driving technology adoption in all forms and, and facets within within the chemical industry. I'd say Western Europe's a step ahead of, of the U.S. And then um, Asia certainly is is high on tech adoption as well. So I think the U.S. could be the laggard a little bit, but we're making strides. Do you see some of the manufacturing continuing to go away from the U.S. just given the labor arbitrage and the cost of production abroad and the cost of shipping still being pretty low? Yeah, I, I do see I do see the U.S. having strong presence in a lot because the, the logistics costs for a lot of the you know, like if you think about um, you know petrochemicals and all the, the oil field chemicals, mm-hmm. it's, the economics don't make sense to import that when we have such a, a natural resource advantage. And then, like in Texas, the the regulatory environment, everything down in like the Bayport, Texas, and the Houston area, is is just so great for chemical companies. They have big pipelines of things that you don't need to be, you know, brought in. Uh, China's wrestling with some of their issues because um, environmentally they're really trying to catch up. So they're moving chemical plants literally across the country and trying to kind of rezone. So um, they're playing catch up. So I, I see it, I see it kind of shaping up in a kind of a, a free market, right? So US is going to have some advantages with certain companies and, and types. And I think each region will follow suit. Interesting. Do you have a sense for why you think the market is so, so fragmented? I mean, this is more fragmented than almost any market I've looked at. And do you think that will continue or do you think it will start to consolidate over time? I, I think there'll be consolidation in chemistry types where there's scale advantage. And I think part of the, part of the dynamic is there are so many types of chemicals that, and, and it, it takes such a specialty from a manufacturing standpoint that it's difficult to kind of lump it all together. But I, I do see consolidation happening within certain chemical groups. Yeah, to your point around what Texas is most equipped to do, I would imagine there's also some geo consolidation, meaning certain parts of the world are much better at producing certain chemicals. You can exactly. almost verticalize that. That's exactly right, yep. If you weren't working on ChemDirect today, what other problems in either the you know chemicals or logistics industries do you really wish somebody would solve today? Yes, one would be um, carbon tracking in, in both industries. So I think you know aspirationally, and it's so far from where we sit today, but how, how exciting would it be to be able to have a digital fingerprint from kind of sourcing of intermediate. It's in, in the chemical supply chain all the way through the disposal cycle. And you can't do that the way the industry is structured today. But measuring that the environmental impact on forever chemicals or any of these things, if you could apply blockchain or do anything along that value chain, and then logistics obviously plays a key role in, in tracking as well. Um, that's an intellectually very interesting uh, area to me. 
That is fascinating. How much pressure is the industry getting you know, put under around carbon emissions, environmental friendliness, sustainability? Is this something that they're, they're facing pressure from? Yeah, but I, you know, what's, what's interesting about the chemical industry, and I'd say it, it, it is similar in the logistics industry, is um, you would never find more uh, zealous safety and environmental stewards than the people that actually own and run the chemical plants. Mm. Um, and so they're usually setting the standard that's far above um, the government regulation. So I don't see a, a tremendous amount of pressure. I actually see a lot of it's just catching up. I mean, people, there's the thing called responsible care in the chemical industry, and people take a lot of pride um, in, in, you know, environmental health and safety. And that, you know, you start every meeting with environmental health and safety, you stop every meeting with it. It's, it's a widely held kind of ethos in the chemical industry, but it's in the U.S. very, very good. Well, that's great to hear. You mentioned one thing we haven't touched on yet that I'm very interested to hear uh, your, your kind of color is the disposal piece. So is that something that is just so far down the line from the manufacturing, the delivery, and then you know, the end customer? How is that handled today? Is that a total separate industry? It, it's, it's separate. And I, I don't think it's, it's it, you know, part of, part of our plan at ChemDirect is to take that big first step into uh, digitizing this value chain, right? And so to me, that's a precursor to, you know, things like blockchain. And it, it, it leads you towards that where you can have a common identifier throughout that entire value chain that's, that you can't, you know, it's an, an inarguable fingerprint that says this chemical started here and ended here. And we have an unassailable truth threaded throughout. So I think we're taking a step towards that. Um, and it's exciting to think about kind of following on to make sure that the, that it is absolutely a pure value chain and digitized. Yeah, absolutely. I actually worked in the blockchain space back in 2017 and kind of during the first boom and wow. the first time people got really excited. And one of the projects I spent a long time on was supply chain and asset tracking. And it's definitely a very particularly interesting use case for some of the technologies. There are challenges with anything that's physical, trying to create a digital footprint for a physical item. But I think there's a lot of opportunity there, especially in things like the chemical space. Yeah, absolutely agree. I would imagine too, on the um, disposal side, given the fact that at the end of the day, ChemDirect is a marketplace, you can also aggregate all the people who deal with the disposal and bring them on because the customers right. who are buying from the manufacturers are eventually going to need the people to help with disposal. So you can act as yes. that intermediary. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, what, what we did at, at Nova as well is we would take uh, materials that would normally go into the environment or a flare and we'd remediate and recycle them and reuse them. And so we would, we would make acetonitrile off of spent material. And so to me, that's a virtuous supply chain that only helps the environment and, you know, you recreate it. I, I had no idea. It was like magic how we did it. Um, but it was, it's, to me, that's, that's a, an add to what you just said is that if you could get all of those materials digitized that could be remediated and not into the flare of the environment, that would be compelling as well. Oh, that'd be really interesting. Well, very cool. Well, Tyler, this has been an amazing conversation. The last question I like to ask everybody is, has there been a piece of advice or a quote that you've been told during your life or career that are just words you live by and things that really stick in your head? I would say, you know, my grandpa always used to say, um, 
be interested, not interesting. Mm. And I, I always that. try to think of that. Yeah. I love that. That's so true. And oftentimes when you are interested, it makes you more interesting. Yeah, very true. Well, thank you so much for the time today, Tyler. If any of the listeners want to learn more about you or ChemDirect, where should they go? Uh, ChemDirect.com. Great. Well, everyone, please check that out. And I uh, look forward to following along with your uh, progress over the next few years. It's a very, very fascinating industry. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Elaine. I enjoyed it. It was great to, great to spend the time.